Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you that we can run to you. We thank you that your arms are open wide through the cross of your son. We thank you for the unconditional love that you love us with. Lord, we thank you that you're with us and for us and that you never leave us or forsake us. God, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and all the ways that you bless us. Lord, today we acknowledge that every good and perfect gift comes from you, that anything we are is by your grace. Anything we have is through your grace. And so we thank you for all your goodness. Lord, I pray just to everyone uh, that's here, that's watching, that's participating in this some way now or later, God, that you'd speak and that you'd move and work and reveal yourself. Lord, I pray that you would help us just to surrender ourselves to you afresh and anew. And God, I pray that you'd forgive us and cleanse us and, and, and change us and make us who you want us to be. Lord, now we pray that you would uh, speak to us through your word, that you would help me to share it clearly and accurately, and that you'd help us to receive it and apply it uh, to our lives through the power of your Holy Spirit and for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, have a seat and uh, turn to Romans chapter 13. And, uh, you know, one of uh, my favorite things that uh, I, I get to do at True Life is to uh, lead in men's leadership training. And uh, what we're doing right now is we're talking about uh, working on how to study and teach the Bible. And one of the guys pointed out the other night that I usually start out my messages with a story and this is true, it was a good observation, and that's kind of just a good communication theory. You know, usually your introduction is kind of like an upside-down pyramid. You start broad, try to attract attention, and narrow it down to the big idea of what you're uh, presenting. But I uh, have no story this morning other than the little story that I just shared because I think the topic that we're going to be on today is not necessarily going to... Uh, require a whole lot of attracting attention. I think it's something that we're really interested in right now because we're going to talk about uh, the government. Um, yeah. This, uh, don't fire me on my birthday, so uh, that wouldn't be nice. But, uh, you know, as we approach a contentious and a crucial election, as we're dealing with issues of racial justice in, in, in our nation, as we see protests, we see cities uh, that are having uh, riots and out-of-control violence, as, as we deal with terrorism and China and other foreign powers, as we try to navigate the coronavirus, we're interested in the government. We need leadership. I mean, I, I can't, uh, well, I mean, just trying to lead a church through the coronavirus uh, feels like sometimes trying to thread a needle while riding a roller coaster. So I can't really imagine being the president or a governor or a director of schools or, or, or something like that and, you know, trying to balance out uh, public health interest but then all of the residual effects that come from trying to do that, which may be worse, which I think probably are worse than the virus itself, and then dealing with issues of liberty. Um, we're interested in, in, in the government right now. We need leadership. We need the government to be what it should be. But the question is, what is that? 
And obviously, there's de- different theories of governments. And obviously, if we went around and uh, did man-on-the-street kind of interviews, you're going to get a whole lot of different answers about what the government is, what the government should be doing, so on and so forth. Uh, so what we need is, like any other um, subject, we need to know what God says about it. And so that's what we're going to try to do today as we go to Romans chapter 13. Uh, You know, government functioning in the way that it's supposed to is necessary for a just and prosperous society. And so what does that actually look like? Well, you know, when you study the Bible, context is key. And so before we dig into the scripture today, I actually kind of want to just set some context for us here, okay? First of all, the context of the series, uh, if you haven't heard the earlier messages, I would encourage you to go back and listen to them. Uh, The first week we talked about just the reality of justice itself is rooted in the nature of God, the fact that he is a just God. We talked about the second week that if we claim to be followers of Christ, that we as the people of God, if we're true worshipers, part of that is living just lives because we worship by the way that we live. Uh, Last week, we talked about the fact that racism is not a skin problem. It's a sin problem, that everybody is their neighbor, so we're called to love uh, everyone, and that doesn't have anything to do with outward uh, characteristics. And so today, like I said, we're going to talk about government. Really, these first four messages have all been laying the foundation. Uh, the next couple of weeks, really going to try to apply it to what's going on in our society today, next week, and talk about how we can actually be a part of a positive change the week after that. So uh, next week could get really interesting. Next week would be kind of like watching a NASCAR race. You're going to wait to see if there's going to be a big crash at some point uh, during the message. So uh, that's kind of where we are, where we're going. Uh, second thing we need to think about context-wise is just... The situation when Paul was writing this. Because sometimes today we think, well, how can I follow the government because the government's so messed up? How can I respect or follow this leader because of what this leader's like? Uh, we, we think, well, we need uh, you know, Christians in office and those kind of things. Were there a whole lot of Christians in office when Paul was writing this? Uh, no. I mean, if you think about some of the leaders around the time that Paul would have been writing this, some of the Roman emperors, uh, they would make our politicians today look like saints. Uh, you had Caligula, who um, started out beloved, started out great, but about six, seven months into his reign, he either had some kind of medical problem or he was poisoned. Historians are kind of divided on that. And apparently he just lost it because he became a wicked, vile, evil uh, man. I mean, he had all kinds of people killed. I mean, we're talking about family members. Uh, He, uh, you know, would just... uh, like during the gladiatorial games, he'd get bored. He'd pull people out of the audience, just throw them to the lions. Uh, I mean, sexual debauchery. Uh, I mean, he was just wicked. It, 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 historians debate about this, but some believe he committed incest uh, with his sisters. Uh, once again, this is debated, but there's some evidence that would say that he tried to have his horse appointed to a political uh, position. That's just a few of the highlights of Caligula. 
Claudius succeeded him after Caligula was murdered. He was a much better emperor other than he had a lot of senators killed uh, to keep his power. That's all that was wrong with him. And, and then you had Nero. Nero, once again, was a very wicked man. Maybe this is all I need to say about Nero, but Nero had his own mom murdered. Uh, that, that was Nero. Uh, and, and, uh, but, you know, the, the fire in Rome that possibly he had set, uh, there's debate about that, but there is no debate that he needed a scapegoat after the great fire in Rome. And so he used Christians and set off a massive wave of uh, persecution. So I understand as we read these words today, uh, Paul is not writing these things. He's not saying be subject to these awesome, moral, godly governing authorities that you have over you in Rome. Okay? So context. But I think we also need to think about the context of our day and the fact uh, that we're not an empire, but we're a democratic republic. And so as we contextualize and apply the teachings of Scripture, we have to factor that in. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt said, let us never forget that government is ourselves and not an alien power over us. Now, Paul could not have written that, but we could say that in the United States of America today. Government is ourselves and not an alien power over us. The ultimate rulers of, of our democracy are not a president and senators and congressmen and government officials, but the voters of this country. We need to remember that. And so, what would that mean practically? Well, maybe one example of, of, of it would be this. You know, when you read what the New Testament says about slavery, sometimes it's a little bit hard for us to understand. And I'm going to do a message on this when we get back into Ephesians in, in a few weeks because that's actually the next passage that coming, is coming up. Well, why, why didn't Paul just say, uh, we got to get rid of slavery? Well, he did, I think, when you read his letter to Philemon, he just couldn't say it overtly because he couldn't come across as trying to overthrow the, uh, the, the Roman Empire. And slavery was just an established and accepted practice in the ancient world. It was different from what we've known as slavery in, in, in America. And, um, you know, there was no standing for him to do anything about it. But the application of biblical principles down through the centuries has led to the abolition of slavery where they have been consistently uh, applied. And it starts on the inside with, you know, the attitude of the heart and it starts with love and that's the Bible's focus. But at the same time, as we encounter slavery or whatever example of oppression or injustice that you ought to use, that you want to use when we are the government in our society today in the sense that we have, uh, you know, power as citizens to vote and advocate and participate, then we ought to use that. So context. Fourth, the context of the book of Romans is salvation ultimately. And if you lay out the book of Romans, uh, you know, the first three chapters or almost three chapters are about condemnation. And then you've got justification in the, from the end of chapter 3 uh, through chapter 5. And then you've got sanctification from chapter 6 through 8. And then from chapters 9 through 11, uh, you've got election. And then from chapters 12 through the end, you've got application, how you live this out. And so 
Chapter 12 begins, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable act of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and perfect and acceptable will of God. And so Romans 13 that we're going to be in, as he talks about the government, is set in that context. And so I think as Christians, and he's writing to uh, believers, we have to approach the, the government, how we view the government in the context of being a surrendered follower of Christ and conforming our minds to the truth of the word of God and not to the world around us. So we're, we're to think biblically, we're to think God's thoughts about every issue, including this issue, and not the world's thoughts, which is what our enemy wants us to do. So that's the context that it's set in. But even a little more specifically than that, there's the context of Romans uh, 12, 17 through 21 that, that comes before this. So, um, you know, it, 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 what he's writing here in chapter 13 flows out of what he says at the end of chapter 12. And so chapter 12, starting in verse 17, uh, he says, Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Uh, if he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in doing so you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, this is what God says to us as individual followers of Christ. Don't avenge ourselves. Bless our enemies. Uh, don't be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. But there's a problem. Not everybody's a Christian, number one. But number two, if, if this was the only command, would not just bad people overrun a society then? And so doesn't there have to be some, I mean, this is just real life, doesn't there have to be some authority that's capable of restraining and punishing evil? That's the context that you read Romans 13 in. And it's kind of interesting because it corresponds to the Old Testament because when you read the law in the Old Testament, when it's speaking to the laws of, uh, that Israel is to be governed by, it says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. When it's speaking to individuals like we looked at last week, it says, love your neighbor as yourself. That's Romans 12 and 13 because all the Bible is from God and so it all fits together. So as we read Romans 13, read it in light of what we just read. Now, there's probably one other thing I ought to say about context and um, then, then we'll read the text and, and just try to walk through it. And, and what we're going to look at is what Scripture tells us here about the nature and the responsibilities of the government and also the responsibilities of the governed, us, unless you're in government, and then it applies uh, to both. But 
The way I've always interpreted uh, Romans 13, like I, I preached through uh, Romans 40-some messages, although I did not actually preach Romans 13, 1 through 7. Roger preached that. But uh, I, I divided it out, and I divided it into Romans 13, 1 through 7, and then verses um, 8 through 10, and then verses 11 through 14. And that's how uh, most Bible scholars or commentators divide it out. And if, and, and, and you could, and if I was preaching through Romans again, uh, you know, I would treat those three individually. But I've come to the conclusion, and it's a minority opinion, but I believe it's right, uh, as I've studied this week, that I believe if you want to see this in its context accurately, that all of Romans chapter 13 actually fits together. And so that's how we're going to uh, approach it today. So uh, let's read the text, and then we'll walk through it and try to understand uh, government and justice and what God intends the government to be and how then we need to respond to that in our day-to-day lives. So Paul writes here, "'Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God.'" Therefore, whoever resists the authority, resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be afraid of, do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does, not, he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. But then he says, owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. So why do I say all this fits together contextually? Because Romans 8, or 13, 8, and then verse 7 obviously fit together. I don't see actually how you separate them because he's just talked about what we owe people. And now he says, don't owe any, anyone anything except to love one another. Plus, I also think this uh, harkens back, connects back to what we read at the end of chapter 12. And the whole thing just seems to fit and flow uh, together. He says, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, Leviticus 19:18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. And then verse 11, he says, and do this. And so I think the and connects it in the flow of thought to what he was just saying. So I think the whole chapter fits together, even though you could certainly look at, uh, you know, verses 8 through 10 separately and, you know, learn truths from that. Same thing with verses 11 through 14. But we're going to just kind of see the, you know, the entirety of the thought here together today. And do this, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. 
For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. And, and, and salvation sometimes in the New Testament refers to justification, sometimes to sanctification, sometimes to glorification or the return of Christ, sometimes all those together. Uh, this is talking about when Jesus comes back when we're glorified. That's what it means in verse 11. He said, the night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. So what is then the nature and, and the responsibilities of the government according to God. Well, I want to make one statement uh, about the nature of the government based on these verses and then point out to you three responsibilities that I believe are given here. Try to develop this some. But, uh, you know, understand... I'm, I'm not a, a politician, so I'm not trying to propose policy solutions here. I'll leave the, that to the people in that sphere, in that pay grade, and I'll try to stick to being a preacher of the Word of God. Doesn't mean I don't have opinions, but uh, I don't preach my political opinions. So, number one, the government is appointed by God to function as his servant, so it stands under God. Once again, verse one, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Do you hear that? Now, let me uh, say some things to help us understand that because that may raise some questions. You know, you, you may be like, Adolf Hitler, was he appointed by God? Or you may be like Donald Trump, he was appointed by God. Or Barack Obama, he was appointed by God, to be fair. The answer seems to be yes, biblically. Now, here's three or four things we need to understand the background of this. First of all, God has ordained, according to the Bible, some different spheres of, in this world that the world functions. There's at least three. Maybe you could argue a fourth is, is work, you know, business, commerce, uh, those kind of things. But, but there, there's at least three. The first one is family. This goes back to creation. This is the only one that actually didn't come about as a result of sin. God set up the family before the fall, right? He created a man and a woman, uh, put them together, told them to be fruitful and multiply and so, forth, so on and so forth. God ordained family as the basic sphere, as the basic institution, really as the basic building block of society. So as, as goes the family, goes the society, and we'll talk about this more next week, but if you want to fix America, fix families. Especially fix the issue of fatherlessness. Because unmistakably, statistically, the biggest problem we have in the United States of America is the issue of fatherlessness. Pretty much every other problem we have flows out of that primarily. So, men, I know you get tired of me saying this. You fuss every Father's Day, but it's, a lot of it's on us. <laughs> That's the reality. That's the way God has set it up. So there's the family. But there's also the, the sphere, the institution of the church. But that came about because of sin. Because Jesus shed his blood for the church, but he shed his blood because we're sinners in need of redemption. 
But he also ordained human government as a result of sin. You see, one of the things that, that we need to understand that the Bible teaches, I believe, that human government, which would include military and police and those kind of things, is an unfortunate but necessary reality because of the sin and the evil that resides in the human heart. And utopia is a lie. We're never gonna have heaven on earth. There's going to be evil, and someone has to give protection and restraint against that evil unless you either want anarchy or the Wild West, where it's the survival of the fittest, Hence what Paul writes in Romans chapter 13. God has appointed these fears. Now, that does not mean that government cannot get corrupted like other spheres. Roman emperors, right? So what Paul is writing here is God's intention, God's ideal, how it's supposed to be. But think about it. In the home, we, we studied this in Ephesians back in February. The husband is the head of the wife, so the wife is to submit to her husband. Sometimes husbands abuse that, and we talked about how that needs to be dealt with. But it's still a God-ordained authority. It's a corrupted authority in that scenario, though. Same thing in the church. Elders, pastors are to lead the church, but elders and pastors can go astray, so it becomes a corrupted authority at that point, but it's still God-appointed, God-ordained, although you know, that authority can be forfeited if it's misused. The same thing is true of the government. Now, something else we need to see here, though, is that if the government is appointed by God, and I think three times in this text is called a servant or a minister, depending on your translation. One of the things that implies is, like I said in the statement, the government stands under God. Listen, human government, no nation, no politician, no ruler is ultimate or lasting. The kingdom of God is what is ultimate, and the kingdom of God is what is lasting, as Chuck Colson used to quip, uh, the kingdom of God is not going to arrive on Air Force One. And so we need to keep that in perspective. The government stands under God because it's appointed by God. And that's a good government or a bad government. It's not ultimate, which also would imply that it's not the ultimate answer. And then fourth, we see in Scripture that God uses even wicked rulers to accomplish his purposes. You see that a lot. One example is in Isaiah 44, 28, and then chapter 45, verse 1, where the Bible calls Cyrus, and this was actually, it's, a, it's an amazing prophecy. It was written 150 years before he was born, but it calls Cyrus God's anointed, and it talks about how God is going to use him uh, well, Cyrus was not a believer. He was not a godly man. And so you don't have to be a Christian to be a ruler, to be a politician, to be a government official, and to be used by God. You say, well, how could God use a wicked person? Who else has he got to work with? <laughs> I mean, does he have any other choices? At least until Jesus comes back to rule and reign over all. 
I mean, if we think somebody's too wicked for God to use, I would say that that is an arrogant and a judgmental statement because anything God has ever done with me or you, he has done it by his grace, even though I'm a wicked, evil, sinful person too. I mean, there may be degrees of how much we sin outwardly, but our heart condition is all the same. So that kind of narrows down his pool. So the government exists by, is appointed by, stands under God. It's a God-given authority. But what's a government supposed to do? Well, three responsibilities here. The government exists to promote the common good. Look, look at the beginning of Romans 13, 4. It says, for he is God's minister to you for good. Now, you know, this is where, um, I'm not going to say a whole lot, this is probably where you could get into a lot of different ideas of what does it look like, uh, you know, for the government to promote the common good. Personally, I'm, I'm more of an advocate of a smaller government. Uh, as Ronald Reagan used to say, government's first duty is to protect the people, not run their lives. He, he also said, no government ever voluntarily reduces itself in size. Government programs once launched never disappear. Actually, a government bureau is the nearest thing to eternal life we'll ever see on the earth. <laughs> but listen to what our Constitution says. It says, we, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. So that's a pretty good expression of, for he is God's minister to you for good. And, and, and let me say this because it's such a big thing in our society today. It's the government's role, if it's functioning justly, to do everything that it can to provide as much equal opportunity for everybody, not try to ensure equal outcomes. Equal opportunity is democracy, and that should be for everybody. Equal outcomes is socialism, which is evil. Because socialism inherently robs people of their freedom. You see, if some of you wanted to go uh, set up an Amish-like colony somewhere out in the middle of nowhere and live communally as socialists, that's your right. That's awesome. Knock yourself out. It's a completely different thing uh, for a government to impose that kind of thing on, on people because at that, at that moment, you are inherently taking people's freedom away from them. So as you listen to political debates and political pundits and media spin and social media junk over the next few months. Listen for whether or not people are talking about equal opportunity or whether or not they're talking about equal outcomes. The government exists to promote the common good. But the government also exists to protect the people from evildoers. Look at what he goes on to say here. It says, if you do evil, be afraid. 
For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Now, in, in Scripture, there's something that's in, in, in Bible, in understanding the Bible, there's something called the law of first usage, which means that the first time a word is used or a phrase or concept is used in the Bible, it's very instructive to its meaning then throughout uh, the rest of Scripture. So in light of that, let's look at Genesis 3, through 24. And this is after the fall, as God is kicking them out of the Garden of Eden. It says, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil, because God only intended for us to know good, not good and evil. And now lest he put it out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim, angels at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword, which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life, because if they ate of the tree of life in this sinful state, uh, you know, they would have been condemned uh, forever. But, uh, the, and, and, you know, this is hard to understand. I can't explain it to you. you. Go to one of the other elders and they can give you, I'm sure, a full, complete explanation of everything that this means. But it's obvious that uh, this sword is being used to guard a nation is to guard its people. Now, I understand that there are Christians who, in good conscience, believe the Bible teaches pacifism. I can't see that. Um, because of what this text says. Now, this would mean, if I'm understanding this text correctly, that a nation needs to have the might to protect its people but also the virtue to use that might in a righteous and an honorable and a wise way. It's what would be called just war theory. But at the same time, I believe that we won the Cold War, that Ronald Reagan was able to write his own speech and stand and say, Mr. Gorbachev, take this wall down because he had also committed us to being so strong militarily that the Soviet Union could not afford to attack us. I believe that's what Romans 13, 4, in effect, is teaching. Now, if we're going to talk about this in light of our society today and be relevant at all, we probably also need to talk about riots and this idea of defunding the police. Now, do we need some police reform? Yes. Do we need to defund the police? I would say we need to be putting more money there. Why in the world would anybody even want that job right now? I mean, we should be encouraging them. Obviously, you know, there's bad apples in every profession. Those need to be dealt with. I believe there is some systemic racism issues there just from people that I've talked to or uh, conservative evangelical African-American pastors, not social justice warriors, and just hearing things uh, that they have said. Does that need to be dealt with? Yes. But do we need to get rid of police? No. Now, I want you to understand something. Judge Sloan um, got me set up to listen in on a webinar with some of the leading scholars in this area. And uh, most of the people that are talking about defunding the police don't literally mean to get rid of the police. There's a fringe that that's what they're saying. 
But that's what most people, that's not what most people mean. Some of it's rhetoric to try to push the conversation along. What most people are talking about, and from what uh, Dwayne says, a lot of people in law enforcement would really uh, agree with this, is there needs to be more like mental health counselors available to police, social workers to help with some calls, uh, you know, more, you know, help with dealing with addiction and those kind of things. But this text is crystal clear that we, the government is responsible to protect us from evil, which would obviously uh, require defining evil and defining it accurately. But uh, we, we need to learn from history sometimes, I think. So let me give you an example from history, okay? This comes from the Montreal Gazette. It's an incident that happened in Montreal, uh, that's in Canada, on October 7th, 1969. And I'm just reading, it says, hundreds of looters swept through downtown Montreal last night as the city suffered one of the worst outbreaks of lawlessness in its history. Fires, explosions, assaults, and a full-pitched gun battle kept Montrealers huddled indoors as the reign of terror brought the city to the edge of chaos and resulted in the call for army help. Listen to this. The previous morning, Montreal police had gone out on a wildcat strike and were busy in study sessions while outlaws took over the streets. The Sorete de Quebec had been deployed to keep the peace with the help of smaller local police forces, but their efforts were not sufficient, sufficient and the armed forces had also been summoned. Meanwhile, emergency back-to-work legislation was passed in Quebec City, forcing Montreal police to return to work at midnight that night, but not before their absence had sparked considerable mayhem. Hundreds of looters swept through uh, downtown Montreal last night as the city suffered one of the worst outbreaks of lawlessness in its history. Hotels, banks, stores, and restaurants had their windows smashed by rock-tossing youths. Thousands of spectators looked on as looters casually picked goods out of storefront uh, windows. Among the targets was the Queen Elizabeth Hotel, which had every shop window broken or damaged. There was one fatality, and I read elsewhere there were 49 injuries, multiple robberies at gunpoints, that kind of thing. Here's how they ended this. The events deeply shocked many Montrealers. Quote, no civilized community should ever be placed in the position in which Montreal found itself yesterday. Which is where any civilized community would end up without police, without doing what God says to do in Romans 13, 4. The third function we see in verse 4 here is that the government also exists to punish evildoers. The sword is a reference to capital punishment. If you go all the way back to uh, Genesis chapter 9, God said, verse 6, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. The Bible teaches capital punishment. The Bible also teaches that any punishment, a lot of the emphasis on the Old Testament law, I mean, there were certain crimes that required capital punishment. There's a lot of emphasis on restitution, that kind of thing for for lesser crimes. But justice is necessary. I mean, if you look at Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 18 through 20, the Bible says, you shall appoint judges and officers in all your gates, which the Lord your God gives you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with just judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall 
shall not show partiality nor take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. You shall follow what is altogether just, that you may live and inherit the land which the Lord your God is giving you. I would encourage you to watch the movie, if you haven't seen it, Just Mercy. There's obviously a need for reform in our criminal justice system, but at the same time, we don't throw out what God has commanded in his word. So the government's appointed by God. It, it exists for the common good. It exists to protect from evil, to punish evildoers. But then what are the responsibilities of the government? Or I'm sorry, not the government, the governed us. Remember, he's writing specifically to Christians. So let me point these out in the few minutes we have left. Number one, we are to submit to government authorities, right? Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, but there's a parenthesis there, except when that would require disobeying God, which in that case makes civil disobedience necessary. Remember, when we were back in Ephesians, once again, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. But if you can't submit to him as to the Lord, if he's uh, abusing you or he's asking you or trying to force you to do immoral, ungodly, wrong things, you don't submit. You appeal to a higher authority. Same case here. Um, you know, submit to your pastors, Hebrews 13, 7 and 17. As long as they're following the word of God, if they're not, then that needs to be dealt with. You don't ever submit to ungodly authority in the will of God. So we're called to submit to governing authorities. We're commanded to, except when uh, we would be disobeying God by doing that. So R.C. Sproul has put it this way, and I, and I think this is about as, as clearly as it could be stated. He said, we are always and everywhere to obey the authorities over us, boss, police, governor, whatever that authority may be. Unless that authority commands us to do something God forbids or forbids us from doing something God commands. Now, if we're going to do that, though, we obviously have to be willing to pay the price for doing it. Martin Luther King Jr., in a letter from a Birmingham jail, put it this way. He said, one may well ask, how can you advocate breaking some laws and obeying others? The answer lies in the fact that there are two types of laws, just and unjust. I would be the first to advocate obeying just laws. One has not only a legal, but a moral responsibility, moral responsibility to obey just laws. Conversely, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. Remember, he says, for conscience sake. He said, I would agree with St. Augustine, so he's not making this up. This goes back in Christian thought for well over 1,500 years. Uh, Augustine said that an unjust law is no law at all. Now, what is the difference between the two? How does one determine whether a law is just or unjust? A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. And so what he would be saying in, in that, or well, let me, an unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law. To put it in the terms of St. Thomas Aquinas, an unjust law is a human law that is not rooted in eternal law and natural law. So in the context of what he was saying, he was basically saying this, segregation 
does not square with the law of God, so it's an immoral law, thus it's an unjust law, thus it's a law that should not be followed. Today, we could say that abortion does not square with the law of God, the, you know, abortion being legal, so it's immoral, so it's an unjust law, and so really is no law at all. And so, uh, understand then that our law, there's a higher law. But you know, one of the things about our law, about our constitution, is it's rooted in the moral law of God from scripture when it's done correctly and when it's applied rightly. But think about some biblical examples of civil disobedience. Exodus 1, the Hebrew midwives refused to kill uh, the Hebrew babies. You have Daniel's companions refusing to bow down to the golden image in Daniel chapter 3. Daniel continuing to pray and ending up in the lion's den in Daniel chapter 6. The apostles refusing to stop preaching the gospel in Acts 4 and 5 saying, we must obey God rather than men. And so these would be some clear-cut examples. If, if, if the government tries to uh, compel you, uh, you know, to kill or those kind of things to do something immoral, you resist that. If the government tries to prevent you from praying or worshiping, or tries to force you to wor worship a false god. You resist that. If the government tries to keep us uh, from preaching the gospel, we are compelled by the law of God to resist that. So we are to submit to the governing authorities, obey the laws as much as possible, unless it's in conflict with the law and commands of God. Amen. Now, you know, sometimes that's maybe a little hard to figure out. You know, in the news right now, John MacArthur, Grace Community Church, uh, defying uh, the state's order not to meet in person in indoor services. And that's probably one of those you could argue either way. Christians are doing that. But um, there are some things like the examples I just gave that are absolutely clear cut. Second, don't shoot the messenger. Uh, this is what it says. We're to pay our taxes. Right? Render, therefore, to all their due. Taxes to whom taxes are due. Customs are to whom customs. Right? That's what it says. Not saying we don't need tax reform, but we're still commanded to pay our taxes. And, and really, Paul here is just reflecting what Jesus said in Matthew 22 when he said, Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and unto God what is God's. Number three, and there should probably be some repenting taking place on this one. We're to have a respectful attitude toward government officials. Fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Are we honoring those in authority over us? You say, I can't respect that person. I can't honor that person. He or she is not a respectable person. Well, I think God would say, if you don't feel like you can respect the person, respect the office. I mean, let's not descend into the mud with everybody else in the world. Remember, this is written as Christians, and we're to live as living sacrifices, not conformed to this world. Maybe I should say, though, on the flip side, those that we're in agreement with, maybe we don't need to deify or defend everything they do or act like everything they say is okay. Four, in verses eight through 10, we're to treat all people with love. 
See, the government can only do so much. And I think that's part of how this flows together. The government, yes, is wrong with the common good, but a lot of what the government is about is about preventing evil, punishing evildoers. But we're to love everybody. We're, we're to forgive. We're not to avenge ourselves. We're to do good. Denzel Washington said, you can't legislate love. Um, John Adams, one of our founding fathers, said, our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. C.S. Lewis said, you cannot make men good by law, and without good men, you cannot have a good society. And see, there, uh, we can get all uh, furry and fuzzy and warm and cuddly and hallmarky about it, but love is an action, Love does no harm. So uh, the loving person is the person who is not committing adultery, who is not lying, who is not coveting, who, who is not stealing. Uh, a, a loving person is the person who is treating other people the right way. And beyond government, that's the key to having the right kind of society. You've got to have the right kind of people. I mean, systems and structure are important, but the people in the systems and structure is actually what makes it work. Because if you have corrupt people running a great system, like a republic, uh, dem dem democratic republic, it's still going to be messed up. And then number five, based on verses 11 through 14 and <clears throat> kind of tying the whole thing together. As Christians, we're to live under the lordship of Jesus and temper our expectations of human government. Live under the lordship of Jesus, once again, living sacrifices. In verse 14 here, he says, we're to put on Jesus Christ. But when I say uh, temper our expectations of human government, to me, that's an implication from everything we read in this passage of Scripture. Government is not designed to be the Savior, Government is not designed to be ultimate. Government stands under God. Government is primarily a protecting force. We're called to love and do good and make a difference. But why do we then, at the same time, seem to want to blame everything on the government and we're so contradictory because, uh, you know, we decry government interference. We complain about big government. We complain about losing uh, uh, freedoms. And then when something goes wrong, we're begging for the government to come in and fix it. Clearly, this text presents government as one sphere and limited in that. And so... Let me close with these implications of that. Number one, human government is temporary and limited, but the kingdom of God will stand forever. 
If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I believe this has to be one of the guiding convictions of life. Daniel 7, 13 and 14, I was watching in the night visions and behold one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the ancient of days and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Listen, the United States of America has been singularly blessed by God, but it's not going to last forever. The kingdom of God is what is ultimate. And that means then, number two, is that our ultimate allegiance is to Jesus and not to a nation or a political party. Jesus did not come to take sides. He came to take over. Joshua chapter 5, starting in verse 13, it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Jesus and Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? So he said, No, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? This is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. And notice what he said. Joshua asked the question, you for us, you for our enemies. Jesus said, neither. He says, but I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. I didn't come to take sides. I came to take over. And if we want to be on the right side, we need to get on the Lord's side. And that may look different politically in different situations and in different occasions. Three, we must repent of looking to government and politicians as functional saviors Because government has a limited role and power, and only Jesus can ultimately save and transform. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I hope comes out of this message is every time you see or hear a political ad for the next three months, or whatever exactly it is, yeah, two and a half months, that after you throw up in your mouth a little bit after the 73rd time of hearing the same one, that you'll remember this phrase, functional saviors. Because that's what every political commercial, you're gonna, every political ad you're going to hear is. They're the bad guy. These are the problems. If you trust us and give your allegiance to us, we're going to fix the problems and give you the utopia that you're looking for. And both sides are going to do it. They always do it. They may be identifying the enemy differently. They may be identifying the problems differently. They're definitely, uh, you know, identifying the solutions differently. And and I'm not saying that, uh, you know, every solution is equal. I'm just saying that's what they're doing. Don't fall for it. Because the same thing happens every two years, every four years, and how much of it really gets fixed. Government is not our savior. Jesus is our savior. But let me say on the flip side that this does not mean that we're to avoid the political process, but we are to engage society as salt and light, Matthew chapter 5. We'll get to that in more detail in a couple of weeks. It also means that we're to pray for those in authority over us. 
Do you know that's a command of God, 1 Timothy 2? Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. So over the next few months, I hope we'll see this election season as a call to prayer as followers of Christ. And then last, let me remind us that we must not forget that being a good citizen will not make us a citizen of heaven, but we must be born again. Listen, I don't want you to hear this and think I'm a good person, I'm a good citizen, I'm law-abiding and all these kind of things. Think about John chapter 3 that starts, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. He was an awesome guy. He was moral, smart, biblically educated. He was a ruler, a leader, had it all going for him. He came to Jesus by night in verse uh, 2. He called him a rabbi and said, you know, you're doing these miracles and, you, you know, God must be with you. And Jesus' response was, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Listen, if, if Nicodemus wasn't righteous enough to get into heaven on his own righteousness, I guarantee you that we're not. He probably had the entire Old Testament memorized. What Jesus would say to each and every one of us is no matter how good of a citizen we are, if we're going to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, we must be born again because ultimately he is the Savior. Human government is a tool that he's appointed. It has its purpose and it's to fulfill the role that he's given. And we're to do what he tells us to do as followers of Christ as the governed. And so if we're a Christian, we're called to you know, live in obedience to this. We're called to think biblically about this. We're called to pray. We're called to try to make a difference. But if you're not a Christian, the ultimate issue here is not government and politics. It is, is Jesus really the Savior? Can he forgive you? Can he transform your life? Do you actually need to be born again.